Behind every good story is an interesting person. This is Person of Interest with Q102's Jeff Thomas. Jeff Birding is the president and general manager of FC Cincinnati, and they have had one hell of a year. The fans, the players, the team ownership, the community proving that Cincinnati is, in fact, a big league soccer town worthy of a major league franchise. And Jeff Birding, along with team ownership, has been driving much of that since the very beginning. Who is this man, Jeff Birding? Well, he is from the institution that is the West Side, Westwood to be exact. Growing up in a family of 10, he played football, basketball, baseball, and of course, soccer. He's a dreamer, an innovator, and a good guy. He's got a heart of gold with big dreams, which is why Jeff Birding is this week's person of interest. My roots are strong. My um, mother's family is from Ireland. My father's family is from Germany, from the Munich area. And um, my uh, great, 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 I think, grandparents on my dad's side settled in over the Rhine. They owned a livery business and really just love our city. I I grew up on the west side. I'm one of 10 kids. Westwood specifically, Yes, Yes. I went to St. Catherine's grade school and played a lot of sports growing up. My parents played sports when I was growing up. My mom and dad played co-ed softball uh, for St. Catharines in an adult rec league and obviously grew up on the big red machine. So, um, And you're one of how many kids? Ten. It's um, So my parents divorced when I was 12, and um, my dad married a, a woman with five. We had five, and ah. so... I was young enough that it, you know, it really became the Brady Bunch plus four. Really? Here's a story of a man, you know, converting, sure. and he had five kids of his own. <laughs> so, how old were you when this was? You said uh, eleven or twelve? Yeah, I was. I was uh, twelve uh, when my parents split, and then my dad uh, remarried. Uh, I think when I was sixteen. So, what was that like merging with this other family? Did you know these kids before they... They had also... They, they went to St. Catharines. They were from Westwood, so I certainly knew the family. Uh, I have a, a, a stepbrother who's exactly one year to the day. We share the same birthday. I was born in 67. He was born in 68. So, oh, wow. Yeah, we certainly knew knew the family and um, became one big melting pot. As, as And, you know, I'll be honest, I had f- friends of mine who had 8, 10, 12 kids, like... Same parents. So having a big family in Westwood was not any big uh, surprise. How has Westwood changed over the years? Well, when I was growing up, we spent a lot of time at Ryan Park. Uh, Cincinnati Rec Commission has a swimming pool there and programs in the summer. Literally, I, I'd walk out the door. Uh, really, we were pushed out the door, really, in the morning and just told to go to the park. And we'd hang out there all day uh, at the pool and we'd swim, and then we'd play board games, and then we'd play whether it be basketball or wiffle ball or what have you. And then we'd go back in the pool to cool off and uh, pack a lunch, or maybe go home for lunch and turn around and go right back. It was idyllic, really. Just and I had all my buddies, and we rode our bikes everywhere, and we could um, walk up to the Covedale Theater in Price Hill to see a movie, or the Westwood Theater uh, there on Harrison Avenue, and. Um, you know, I think to some degree, like a lot of society, it's not as um, dense. It's not as concentrated with all the kids from that same school. Uh, you don't walk everywhere like we used to. I think parents have a little bit more concern uh, these days. 
to be fair, there's certainly a, a lot more diversity, which is probably a good thing. Um, I mean, when I was growing up, it was just all the Catholic families, and it, you either went to St. Catharines, or if you got a little bit more into Cheviot, you went to St. Martin, or if you got a little bit more into Price Hill, you went to St. Teresa's, um, and, and that was pretty much everyone, everyone you knew. And you played against those kids when during baseball season, during basketball season, during football or soccer season, and and then all of a sudden you're at high school together, and either those are those guys you played against are now your buddies, and some of their buddies that went to Elder or went to LaSalle are still guys you know because you grew up your whole, you know, childhood playing against these guys in sports as competitors. Yeah, and and it was awesome, and really that from such having such a big family and playing sports and being with my buddies, that's probably where. Um, you know, my competitive streak sort of um, uh, grew. Uh, my mom will sh- uh, say that she encouraged that a great deal. My mom's pretty feisty. And, um, you know, seeing her play softball against guys and having guys take her out at second base when she was playing shortstop, uh, in a, you know, th- th- those are all formative uh, memories. So you ended up, you went to St. X, went on to Miami University, mm-hmm. where you got your degree, and then you got your master's in business at Xavier. Is this the life that you envisioned for yourself as a kid growing up? Not at all. Ne- never in a million years. Where did you think you would be? Well, I mean, when I was in St. Catharines, I probably assumed I was going to go to LaSalle where all my buddies went, but I had a um, some high school teachers and a, and a, and a, or some grade school teachers and a grade school coach who really encouraged me to go to St. X because they felt that... Uh, that would be the best environment for me, both in terms of the Jesuits and the Jesuit influence, men for others, and also just academically probably push me a little bit harder. Um, grade school. Were you a good student? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I was always competed to be the best student in the class. Mm. Um, there was a guy, Steve Nyheisel, who was the valedictorian at LaSalle, uh, who was a good friend of mine, and a, and a girl, Lisa Nury, uh, Judge Nury's daughter, who... Um, Went to St. Ursula and did very well and is a doctor now. Um, but the three of us always competed to be the best student. It wasn't good enough to be one of the better students, You'd be the best. So so I went to St. X, and um, then the Jesuit influence of Men for Others took over and it really pushed me to college. Um, uh, I was the first birding to go to college uh, and graduate from college. And um, when, I was at, when I was at Miami, I was political science, diplomacy, foreign affairs, I studied uh, Russian language. I spent a summer in uh, Moscow uh, taking Russian. I was in 1988. And what was the plan at that point? Like, were you thinking international diplomacy? Yeah, I thought I was going to work for the State Department or maybe the CIA. Really? um, And was very interested in international peace. Where'd that come from? I don't know. I think it came... Inspired that. Well, when I started at Miami, I was interested in... I studied African studies and was interested in in uh, world poverty and world hunger, uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't master French yeah. uh, because I studied Latin in high school and um, I got to French 101 at Miami and everyone had had two or three years of high school French, but they were in 101. Mm. And literally, I remember saying to the teacher after she spoke French the entire first day, I said, I am in the right class, right? This is 101, beginner's French. And she said, yes. And I said, well, I'm noticing everyone else is talking to you in French and I don't know what in the world you're all saying she said, well, that's how you're going to learn. And it seemed to me to be an enormous disadvantage. Right. Uh, and uh, at that time, Gorbachev had just came to power in the Soviet Union and perestroika and glasnost and new openness. And 
He was interested in making peace with Reagan. Uh, and it just occurred to me that there was this new world out there and someone who had Russian language skills and, and, and still had um, uh, an interest in, in other parts of the world like Africa and politics in the United States. I was politically, I started getting politically active at Miami. I was not really in high school. And uh, it just occurred to me that I might have some natural leadership skills and um, and I was very academically, intellectually interested in, in international affairs and Soviet relations. And so I thought I would go that route. And then the politics became a little bit more pressing because I started learning that you could be the best expert in a particular subject area. And that might mean you were the number two person at an embassy because the number one person, the ambassador, was usually someone who was pretty, pretty politically connected. And so the political connections and the political experience uh, became much more important. So uh, as I came out of college at Miami, I was I worked for the Attorney General of Ohio, Tony Celebrezzi. I worked for the Speaker of the House, Vern Reif. I was the state political director for U.S. Senator John Glenn. Uh, I still count as one of my greatest political memories. I flew in John Glenn's plane with uh, this Senator Glenn and his wife, Annie, were uh, piloting the plane, and I was one of the two staffers in the back of the plane. We flew, flew on uh, Labor Day, from Columbus to Akron to Cleveland and back to Columbus that night. And I sort of staffed the Senator the whole day. And that was just awesome to feel like I was in the, in a plane flying with uh, this American hero, John Glenn. Well, I mean, he's an astronaut, so the guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, no. Yeah. And then later he went back up in space after right. he uh, concluded his, his career in the United States Senate. So I started getting a little bit more uh, connected to politics as a way to affect policy that could lead to better relations in the world and 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 uh, improve conditions for people here in the United States and and for, and for elsewhere in the world and and really that's what I thought I was going to do and uh, it really just changed. I moved back to Cincinnati in uh, 1995. Uh, I was uh, going to get married and and start law school at the University of Cincinnati. And long story short, I uh, was talked out of going to law school by one of my buddies who had just graduated from law school and said, do you, he asked me, do you want to be a lawyer like Bill Hours or do you want to just have a legal, the legal training? And I said, I just really want the legal training. And he said, then don't go to law school. You'll, you'll be miserable. Um, and uh, we just talked about it and I decided to get my MBA at Xavier. And so I had started my MBA at Xavier at night. And then I got a call from John Williams, who was then the president of the Chamber of Commerce here in town, and uh, they wanted to talk to me the um, the the half cent sales tax to, for the stadiums to build the Reds and the Bengals stadiums and keep them in town was going to go on the ballot. They needed someone to run the campaign, someone with political experience, and I had known some folks in the business community through some of my previous political um, efforts, uh, and um, they offered me the job to run the campaign, and that sort of became the pivot point from politics trying to make the world better through politics to try to make the world better through our sports teams. And in, in the sports teams, the right way can be a real lift to a community and, and, and really create connection points for people and make us feel more connected and more united as a community. And, and that was very appealing to me. You worked for the Bengals for 19 years. I led our sales efforts. So whether it be season ticket sales, club seat sales, uh, private suites, you know, the premium seating, 
help manage the advertising behind this, you know, to support the sales, the servicing of the accounts. And then I did our, uh, what I called our not foot, non-football PR. So if you wanted to interview AJ Green, that was Jack Brennan. But if you wanted to talk about the Bengals um, trying to sell out a home playoff game or uh, security measures at the stadium, things of that nature. I usually handled those uh, those topics. It's an interesting fork in the road because you were also elected to city council in 2005, so you sort of had this day job and then you had this other job. How many hours a week does it take as a city council person? Yeah, how well, much? it depends on what you want to make of it. You know, um, when I was on council, we always joked that we were on the losing side of a lot of five to four votes. And the five versus four was not Republican, Democrat, was not liberal versus conservative. It was the five full-time politicians against the four part-time politicians. And um, I, I remember Roxanne Qualls told me and Chris Sports when we were first elected in 2005, she said, never lose your day job because your income from your day job will be liberating to you. Uh, the point being, you can do what you think is in the best interest of the city long term and not worry about the political implications oh, of the that's next interesting. election. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because I suppose conceivably you could live full time on a city council person's salary. I don't know what it is. I think at the time it 60, was like 60000 or something mm-hmm. like that. But more than a livable salary sure. here in Cincinnati. But if you if you do have your day job, that's true. You're you're not necessarily beholden to party pressures, I guess. Correct. I mean, I think just in, in general, if it's your full-time job, you're always sort of, to a certain degree, sizing up some of the tough votes and could this cost me my job? Could I lose my election over this? And everyone will make the best determination on what they think is right, but that's always going to be in the back of your head. And I think Chris Sports and I um, always sort of felt like we were doing this to try to make the city best long-term. Neither of us wanted to be lifers. You know, we weren't looking to run for Congress someday or something else. We just really were trying to make the city better. And I always felt confident that I'd cast the tough votes and I was politically astute enough to, to win election anyway. And if I lost, then I lost. And my life got a lot more simple and I didn't have to worry about spending 30 to 40 hours a week up at City Hall. And I had a great job at the Bengals. Um, Mike Brown and the Bengals' ownership were enormously generous with me, letting me do both jobs for almost six years. I remember Mike Brown, when I asked him, um, people in the business community encouraged me to run in 2004. And uh, Mike said, if, the, if, you, if you can help make the city better, that's good for the Bengals. Uh, that's good for Procter & Gamble. Did you ever feel pressure, though, from a guy like Mike Brown saying, okay, listen, I'm your day job, you work for me, you're on city council. Did you ever find yourself in a position where you felt like there might be a conflict of interest there? No. Um, obviously, the Bengals' business relationship is with Hamilton County. If I'd been a county commissioner, yes, that might have been there'd, a there'd probably story. been some conflicts. But the city of Cincinnati's relationship with the Bengals is really no different than any other business uh, you know, the sidewalks are clean, the police are doing their job, the fire department's doing their job, uh, you know, the, the roads, uh, the potholes are filled, and all those things cost money. So let's grow the tax base. Let's get more companies in here. Let's get more people working. Uh, let's help people by making sure they have a job to support their families. And, and that tax revenue that flows from the income tax is how we take care of all those services. And, and, and really, the, the, the biggest thing that I had to do with that had anything to do with the Bengals, uh, when, when I was running the campaign, I talked about let's use the opportunity of the sales tax to keep not only keep the two teams in town, but then develop the riverfront. 
And and um, from 1996, when that uh, when the vote was passed, the, the half cent to uh, 2005, when I ran for city council, all we had was a mud pit and some parking lots down on the banks. And and I remember saying on the campaign trail that one of my first priorities when being elected is to finish the vision that I painted as the campaign manager in 1996, and that we are going to develop the banks. And at the time, the county had. Uh, control of the banks, and they had had numerous false starts on getting the banks developed. And Chris Bortz and I conceived the plan to turn it over to the private sector. We created the bank's working group. We got Bob Castellini and Tom Williams uh, to take a leadership position in that effort. Uh, and the city and the county joined together to pledge the TIF and 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 some other tax uh, sources to build the parking garages to lift the development out of the banks. And then ultimately, that's what led to the bars and the restaurants and the apartment buildings and the condos and everything that's uh, you know come in over the past uh, 10, 13 years on the riverfront. Did the bank's success happen sooner than you thought? Because I'll tell you, when I moved here in 2002, it was said to me on more than one occasion, you can live here the rest of your life. It's never going to happen. Nobody believed it could be done. Well, I think that that was probably a, a time when we had a lot more skepticism as a community and... Um, Certainly felt that for sure, but I felt I was uniquely positioned uh, if I was elected to city council as the person that helped paint the vision of what the riverfront should be, If that we were going to use the two teams in, in the stadiums uh, and we were going to develop the riverfront. And I had painted that picture, and I w- if I could get elected, I thought I had the relationships in town to help make that happen, and I partnered with Chris Bortz when we got elected together, and that became a real priority, and uh, we worked with that then uh, Commission President Phil Heimlich, and we worked with Mark Mallory, and we tried to bring the city and the county to the table, and 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 sort of just overpower, overcome any opposition to to get it done. And um, I'm certainly proud of that. You know, when you drive along the the riverfront now, and you know, there's a World Cup party uh, next weekend. Uh, that you know, I had a hand in in helping to make some of that happen. So you left council, how long, let's see, you were reelected in 2007, 2009. I left in May of, um, of 2011. I wasn't going to run for reelection. Um, I, I had a lot of work to do at the Bengals at that time, and it really did require my full focus and attention. Um, and so, like a lot of times at council, if you're not going to run for reelection, it's easier to just take a step aside. I loved the opportunity to serve on council but was determined to continue to serve my community in other ways, as I had been doing before elected to council through things like the United Way. And so uh, I stepped aside and was immediately invited to join the board of my kids' youth soccer club. I had coached my kids in rec soccer, say soccer, um, over on the east side. Uh, Both my son, um, Jack, and my youngest daughter, Grace, loved it. It's a great way to not only get to know your kids better, but also their friends. Yeah, And just, I loved it. My son in particular was really uh, um, interested in in playing at the highest level, and so he joined Select Soccer, and uh, I was invited to be on the board, and I don't do anything much half-heartedly, so I joined the board and immediately started uh, pushing that we should merge with another club. There's too many clubs. In effect, they they disperse the talent. In order to get kids to be the best, you want them every single day practicing against the best, against other really good kids. I, I liken it to in school, you don't learn at the test. The test is when you show what you've learned. You learn every day when you show up for school. Well, you get better every day at practice. The game is just where you have fun competing and showing your skills. 
and so if, if you have three or four really good kids and the others, there's a big drop off. Those three or four really good kids aren't going to really, you know, graduate up to be maybe kids that someday play professionally or play for the U.S. men's or women's national team. And so we merged Hammer SC, which was sort of the east side of Hamilton County, with King's Soccer Academy in Northern Kentucky, and we became King's Hammer. I became the president of the board, served for three years, and that really was where I started having this vision of bringing professional soccer to Cincinnati. It's always been surprising to me that soccer hasn't played more of a prominent role in American sports really until seemingly today now. Well, it's taken a few generations. You have to, I mean, if you think about it, football has been in this country for close to 100 years. The NFL, as we now know it, has been around since about 1970. The Bengals just celebrated their 50th year, or maybe 1960, really. So 60 years, the Bengals 50. Um, You know, soccer is only a couple decades old. Uh, The league was started in the late 90s, and it's just, it's taken time. When you look at the rest of the world, soccer's been around for generations and and we're really just here in our um, really starting our third generation Uh, I played soccer growing up in Westwood Uh, I had a German coach a doctor who uh, was from Germany and and he say soccer had really just started here Um, and you know so you think about that that's the early to mid 70s you know it's just not been that long and these things take time but when I was the president of King's Hammer and traveling all around the country and seeing these multi-million dollar facilities, 20 fields, and we're literally staying 50 miles at a hotel 50 miles away because all the hotels within 50 miles are all booked, you could start to see this thing was had some scale. And obviously, we had uh, we have an MLS team up the road in Columbus, and I'd been to a few games. and uh, But I know that Cincinnati is a major league sports town, a, a city that supports its pro teams. Uh, win or lose and it just occurred to me that there was an opportunity in soccer so I started looking at the ratings to see when the U.S. men were on or um, U.S. women were, were the ratings in Cincinnati any different than St. Louis or any different than Kansas City and they, they weren't and the number of youth players in this area per capita are as good as just about any city in the United States so there was this great youth foundation People were watching it on TV. They were watching on weekends. The you know I, I checked out a couple bars and saw big crowds watching English Premier League on Saturday and Sunday mornings. So it was clear to me that there was a, a an opportunity if it was done right. And I just felt, given my civic background and my professional sports background and a little bit of soccer knowledge of the local community, I felt like I had some unique experience to try to write the plan. So about that plan, we're going to pause here. When we come back, that very first phone call with Carl Lindner III. What was that like when the plan to bring soccer to Cincinnati was first set in motion? As Person of Interest continues next. We'll be back with more Person of Interest in a moment. Welcome back to Person of Interest. I'm Jeff Thomas. Jeff Birding is our guest today. He's the president and general manager of FC Cincinnati, a fifth-generation Cincinnati guy through and through. Coming up, he'll talk about some of the lessons he learned growing up on the West Side, especially about winning and losing, what drives him. But first, the plan to bring soccer to Cincinnati and the very first phone call he had with Carl Leonard III. So how does that go? 
is Carl Leonard III in your cell phone? Like, do you just pick up the phone and call the guy? Do you send him a letter? You send Carrier Pigeon? How does that first meeting take place? I wrote a business plan to bring professional soccer to Cincinnati, and I shared it with the Bengals and said, hey, would you have an interest in bringing professional soccer to Cincinnati at Paul Brown Stadium? Walk through the elements of the plan, and um, th- they didn't have uh, much interest. And uh, I took it to Bob Castellini at the Reds and said, hey, would you have an interest in bringing professional soccer to Cincinnati playing in the outfield at Great American? And I'll acknowledge that's that's not the most brilliant plan, playing in the grass at a baseball stadium, but at least on a temporary basis it could be done. Uh, we were talking about doing a, a lower division team. Um, soccer's a little different than baseball. When you think of baseball, you think of minor league baseball. You know, the, the Reds have teams at lower levels, but they all sort of report up to the Reds. And in the rest of the world, in soccer, you have lower divisions, and those teams graduate up higher divisions through what's called promotion relegation. I knew we weren't going to have promotion relegation, but the point was to prove that Cincinnati was a great soccer market and then earn the business promotion up to Major League Soccer. And so when the, after the Reds and Bengals had said no, I was looking for a place to play, and the University of Cincinnati had just done a you know, 90-some million dollar renovation and improvement at uh, Nippert, and I uh, called the athletic director, Mike Bone, and um, asked if uh, I could have a meeting to talk about soccer. And to Mike's credit, he was, he's a visionary guy. And and he saw it and uh, thought, you know, we we have all these college students on campus who that's the generation that loves soccer. Both men and women play. Uh, they had their largest international class. A lot of those students are coming from countries where soccer is the number one sport. We were going to be bringing all these youth families onto UC's campus. And what a great sales pitch than to walk around and see them tens of millions of dollars they've invested in improving the campus. Our games were going to be on TV. And so we're going to have an opportunity to showcase throughout the region and and uh, the beauty of Nippert and UC's campus. And so uh, Mike thought it, it could work. And so he took it to the, the President Ono and, and the board. And and then one day I got a call uh, that it was, uh, Carl Linder was calling me and I spoke to Carl. And this was in early uh, 2015. And what was he saying? Hey, I hear you got this plan. Let's he, hear about he, it. He said, I understand you're the guy that's looking to bring professional soccer to Cincinnati. He says, I've been thinking about that myself. He said, I have a real passion for soccer. My kids played. I've talked to some of the MLS owners who have been encouraging me for years to get in on uh, the action. And he said, would you mind coming over and, and having lunch with me to talk about maybe we should marry up our efforts? And um, I had lunch with him the same day. Wow, and um, he had a real passion for both soccer and and the city, and I uh, had a had a passion for soccer in the city, and so we married up efforts, and I um, went back after that lunch and told the Bengals, remember that soccer thing that we kicked around a few months back and really didn't go anywhere? And I said, you know, Carl Inner just had me over for lunch, and it seems like that might go somewhere, and it was never my intention to run the team. I always figured that whoever was the owner was going to run the team. I just thought from a civic standpoint, it'd be great for our, for our city to have professional soccer. And, and I was just lucky to be the guy that had the idea. And, and I figured Carl was just going to run with it. Uh, but in uh, late May of 15, uh, Carl and I went up to New York city to make sure that there was a pathway to MLS. And if we knocked it out of the park and, and then afterwards, Carl said, um, listen, I'm all in. I think the plan's the right plan, and 
my family will be the majority owners. We had some minority owners at that point. And he says, but listen, it's your passion. It's your vision. You got to be the guy to run it. So if, 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 if you're, if you're all in, uh, you know, let's transition you from the Bengals to, to run this franchise. And it was always the plan from day one. Major league soccer was always the goal. Yes. Yeah. We're a major league sports town. I always say that's what distinguishes us from other really great communities, you know, whether it be Dayton or Toledo or Lexington or Louisville, you know, our sports teams put us on the map at a higher level. Yeah. You know, we're on the news every single night uh, on ESPN. And when we're playing the Cubs all week long, right now we're playing the White Sox. All week long, they're talking about Cincinnati. When we're playing New York all week long, they're talking about Cincinnati. And that elevates our profile in a manner that uh, I think helps us from a business standpoint in terms of recruiting North American headquarters or investment or talent, you know, graduating from other colleges across the country. And, and Cincinnati's is on the is on a top of mind basis, I think, in, in big part because of our sports teams, whether you're a sports fan or not. As exciting as it is that we have this brand new $200 million stadium coming to the West End, there was something magical about going to an FC game at Nippert. Oh, absolutely. We knew that sort of our business plan was, you know, a strong, passionate local ownership, uh, a professional sports uh, experienced uh, management, uh, quality soccer. So we were going to invest in good players to have a chance to play quality soccer that would sort of pass the eyeball test. And then the place to play, you know, you couldn't call yourself a professional soccer team if you're playing in a high school stadium. And so uh, we have a great partnership with the University of Cincinnati. They've been brilliant. And the neighborhood, too. I mean, I feel like Uptown oh, at large well, embraced it, it. And the timing, right? Because Uptown had just gone through some tremendous in, uh, investments and improvements. Uh, and so uh, the, the timing was perfect. We had the opportunity to spend uh, about $4 million on improving Nippert. You think about, you know, it's an all-green field. You're not looking down on uh, football lines. It makes it look authentic. We widened the field. Uh, obviously, there's all the suites. There's the Bailey team facilities there. Our team has practiced there. And so you put all of that together. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great environment. And we went to all the sports bars and, and recruited fans to create the Bailey. And that's completely authentic. It's as organic as it can be. We're literally, the, the people are like, how'd you do that? And I said, we empowered and trusted people to create the environment. Most great soccer communities around the world have an area like the Bailey. And, and, and so there was no official control over that then. That was just all fan born. Yeah. I, I, I joke when you go to an NFL game or maybe other sports, everything's pretty scripted. What goes on the video boards? You know, uh, the music that's played, all of that is pretty choreographed, choreographed and calculated. Yeah. And in soccer, you just have to trust your supporters. But, you know, I, Jeff Ruby was at the game the other night and, and he sent a bunch of tweets out. He was in the Bailey. They let him play the drums and, uh, you know, all the songs. They make up the songs. They decide when they want to play, when they want to sing, what they want to chant. And the beauty of it is we just we just entrust, I say our supporters are owners of the team because they own the game day environment and they really influence the decisions we make as a club. Fiercely loyal. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I want to be honest, it's easy to say, but we, I mean, I have a fan advisory council of about 30 season ticket holders, different walks of life, different levels of interest, different backgrounds. Do other teams have fan advisory councils 
I don't Bengals, know. Bengals, Reds, know. or other professional, more traditional American I, sports teams have fan I, I, advisory I, I, I councils? Think, I think it's pretty uh, original. I'm not saying that we're the only one, but examples are uniforms. We, we, they're our focus group for our uniform design um, who are playing in the international friendly. They give us feedback on that. We consult with them on our pricing. Uh, and tr- uh, we want our pricing to be family friendly. And so we let them be the focus group there. Our community initiatives, like where we're going to build futsal courts. I mean, we try to give them real legitimate ownership. We're working with MLS right now as we move up. And we have that fan advisory council consulting with us on all sorts of decisions that we're making as we go from the USL to MLS. Was the West End always the plan? Um, I would say this. We worked with, because the plan always was Major League Soccer, we started working with Michael Schuster and Associates for where would be the site to build uh, the stadium. And some of that is literally acreage, right? Like where would it fit? Uh, but we went through a pretty significant process where we looked at all kinds of sites. And I think at some point there was about a dozen sites that we evaluated. And it came down to three that we thought were were what I called at the time winning sites. We we, we could thrive there. We, we, we could be good building an MLS facility on those three sites. And the three sites were in the West End, uh, there across from the Reds Riverfront on the uh, Newport side. Um, and then in Oakley, um, back at Oakley Square, right off I-71. And and truly, and I, I would have been happy building the stadium in any of the three. I think we would have thrived. Each site had unique um, strengths and, and some challenges to overcome for sure. And really, in my mind, it was sort of a race to the finish line to see which one we could get done. Oakley was the one we got over the the finish line first. We got it over the finish line just in time for us to go up to New York City from uh, the meetings with the uh, MLS expansion committee. We pitched Oakley and, again, talked about some of the strengths and some of the challenges. Um, Oakley certainly by no means suburban. You don't think of uh, Oakley the same way you might think of a Westchester or a Blue Ash. But it is a little further removed out of the core of our uh, city, of our region, and there was a question of what else would be around it. Right now, there's a lot of big box up there, and we felt that that would evolve over time, and, and we could do a pretty neat development around there. But there were some ingress issues. You know, really, there's just one two-lane road uh, coming in and then uh, maybe another one coming out. And um, the infrastructure in terms of the highway could be enormously expensive. So there were some challenges and the feedback was that, you know, we, we should continue to pursue uh, Newport and the West End. That was feedback from Major League Soccer. Not just Major League Soccer, but I would say a little more broadly. Yeah. It just, listen, Oakley might not be the best fit for some of those challenges. Mm. And so while Oakley maybe becomes the ultimate destination, let's keep pursuing these others while we continue to sort of sort through pros and cons of Oakley. And so with the strength of what's happening, uh, the renaissance that's happening in Over the Rhine, West End being right there, an opportunity to really be right in the core of the city, try to do things the right way from an inclusion standpoint, creating economic opportunities. The West End was a neighborhood that had not received a, an enormous amount of investment from the city over the years. Uh, and the thought was that maybe that we could be a catalyst for growth, a catalyst for change a catalyst for improving people's lives. And And how do you do that? How do you balance, again, we come back to that same thing where you want to improve a neighborhood, but you also want there to be 
economic diversity and you don't want to see gentrification take sure. place? Well, I, I think I think some of it is, you know, number one, we were committed not to displacing residents. And so we had the opportunity to acquire a site uh, up along Central Parkway that involved us acquiring businesses and, and reassuring people that we weren't talking about uh, acquiring homes. Um, that was number one. N- number two uh, was the partnership with Cincinnati Public Schools. Uh, number three was our, our willingness to commit to Cincinnati City Council and, and David Mann that we would do a community benefits agreement to put in writing legal commitments that we were going to do this the right way. Uh, working with a partner, uh, we just announced Turner Construction uh, that has a strong track record of inclusion with both contracts and the and uh, workforce. Um, had meetings with the building trades. Back to my political experience, I had some good relationships there. And said, guys, we really want to do this the right way. We, we need to have some apprenticeship programs. We need to get some communication out that people, we're going to start building the stadium in, say, eight months. Let's get people in the apprenticeship program now so that when the companies uh, are hiring carpenters and electricians and uh, whatnot, that People have, have the skills, and so let's get the neighborhood involved early. And so we've had one, and we're about to have a second um, town hall meeting on inclusion, and the goal is to continue to to do that. We signaled that we would make investments in the community. Uh, we just uh, had an event last week where we bought the helmets and the shoulder pads for the little Senators youth football team. And you know, that's American football, not world football. There's no soccer balls, there's right. footballs. But we did that because we want those kids to have a better experience growing up in their neighborhood like I had growing up in, in Westwood. And sports was a big thing for me. And I understand the power of sports to be a big thing for, for kids to, to, work, to learn to work hard and have high goals, uh, ambitious goals, to dream big. And to know that you don't go through life alone, you know, you have your teammates. And I think that's one of the beauty of sports is learning how to lose as a team because life involves loss. And when you realize that you don't have to suffer losses by yourself, that you can fall back on your teammates. Um, the, the guys that I played sports with at St. Catharines are still some of my best friends today. And, and that's because of what we went through in our childhood through sports. And, and I want the kids in the, in the West End, whether they play football or baseball or basketball or soccer, to have those same kinds of opportunities. And, and I think having a professional sports team in their neighborhood can be a really great influence. When we talk about how special and unique and cool and magical it is to watch NFC game uptown at Nippert Stadium, how do we recreate some West End magic moving forward? You, there was a quote you said, long after I'm gone, the stadium's going to be there. If you look at stadiums in England and around the world, they've been there 100 plus years. I feel a responsibility to manage this because you don't get a do-over with the stadium. Well, it's true. And um, the, I think our vision for the stadium is that it really is consistent with the, the experience of soccer. It's a part of the community. You know, I, I, I said when we announced uh, the MLS franchise was awarded and, and we were at Rheingeist and I said it's appropriate that we're at a bar. Because when you think of a soccer franchise, you think of it in the neighborhood. You think of it being accessible. You think of um, where you know people know your name. You think of where you have a laugh. Maybe sometimes you have a cry uh, over over a drink. Uh, but it's organic that way. And that is the history. If you go to Manchester, England, uh, you know the, the stadium grew up across the street from the pub and down the street from the mill and in the heart of a neighborhood where people walked to each of those places and, and people were your neighbors and you sort of lived and died for your team. 
and we want to have that similar connection. And so that's why we announced the franchise, MLS franchise, in a bar, uh, because to me that's more fitting to what we're about. Um, Carl Linder and I, after games, oftentimes go to a bar and have a beer with the fans and just listen to what they have to say, whether that be good or, or, or hey, we, we need to do this better. But we're accessible that way, and I think that makes us a better club for it. With the stadium, that therefore that vision and th- those values have to be incorporated into the design of the stadium. It has to be open. It has to be accessible. It's not a big fortress. Uh, it, there's no big walls boxing us off from the rest of the neighborhood. There's going to be space that's uh, available for use. You know, we were in a meeting today talking about we're going to invite the neighborhood in for a movie night, and everyone just brings a blanket, and they sit on the grass, and mm. on the scoreboard we have kids' movies. That's why I feel it's just critical. And so we'll have our fan advisory council uh, help us get it right. We'll have our community coalition working with us and the design committee working with us to get it right. And we're going to take ideas and feedback from everyone and do our best to incorporate them into a winning program that can stand the test of time. Is that where you're most comfortable in a bar? I'm inclined to use the word pub because it feels more sure international and germane to soccer. It, it, it is. It's a pub. Um, Pastor Nick Burnett's been a key leader, and he would want me to say we feel most comfortable in a church. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the point is, is that there's neighborhood gathering points, and whether that's the church or the pub or the rec center, you know, the Lindner YMCA is down in the West End, and we've had a bunch of meetings down there. The point is, is we're in a neighborhood uh, in the gathering points of the neighborhood. We're not up at the top of the mountain in a castle that's inaccessible to everyone but the team. That's just not how we have built FC Cincinnati. That doesn't that wouldn't reflect our values. What would you say is the best lesson you've learned? Certainly the importance of teachers and coaches and mentors. I wouldn't be where I am today. I've led a very blessed life, but if it weren't for coaches and teachers and mentors along the way, seeing some potential in me and, and, and giving me an opportunity to be a leader and feedback, um, encouraging me to dream big in life, uh, to, to feel like I can really achieve anything I set my mind to. Uh, certainly my parents and my siblings were all a part of that environment too. But I think if, if with help and if you recognize that everyone in life, all of your relationships have the opportunity to be helpful in a genuine way. Right. Um, if you listen and you learn and you work hard and you're responsible and you deliver and, and you just soak up all the knowledge and, and all those relationships in a way that make you a better person, I think we can achieve anything in life. Sometimes you have to be flexible. I always say that I'm very committed to the vision, very flexible to the journey. Um, That's interesting. So I've always wanted to make my world better. And then I realized that I can make my world better by making my community better. And then I thought I could make my community better through politics. And, And then I realized if done the right way, I can really make my community better through sports. What do you want your kids to do when they grow up? So I have three, a 16-year-old daughter, an 18-year-old son, and a 20-year-old daughter, and they're all different. They're all wired differently. They all have different goals in life. Um, We all want our kids to be happy. We want our kids to be healthy. Um, And and in my mind, I would add, I, I want them to leave the world better than when they came into this world. But I'm 
I'm very open to where they see their skill sets and their ambitions and how that allows them to do that. You could be the best accountant in the world, but you volunteer to be a tutor. Uh, you're a big brother, a big sister. You're, you're involved at the United Way. Uh, you're involved in your church. There's lots of ways to make the world a better place, but I think if all of us are determined to to do that and make our mark collectively, we can make a really big mark. And I'd certainly want my kids to see, hopefully from some influence from me, that uh, they can set their mind to really big goals, really big ambitions, and, and would hope that part of that ambition would be to make the world better. What do you think it, it is that drives you, especially through the setbacks? Um, you know, there's the biblical phrase to to whom much is given, much is expected. And that really was driven into me at St. Xavier High School by uh, the Jesuits, you know, the notion men for others to be a servant leader. And th- those are formative lessons at that point in my life. And I was a kid growing up, probably lower middle class, lower income kid, big family. You know, we had sports and not a whole lot else uh, other than we loved each other. And for me to have the opportunities I've had in life, I've been driven to meet that obligation in any way I can. And it's evolved over the years for sure. But that is what motivates me. You know, when we depart the earth, we don't take anything with us. Yeah. Um, and and what, we'll, what, we'll, what we leave behind is, is, is what we did to make our world or our community and people better. And um, seizing a, of my God-given talents and the experience that creating FC Cincinnati, partnering with Carl Linder, whose family is probably the greatest philanthropist the city's ever seen, Carl and I partnering together, we can do some really neat things for this community and, and make our community better for, for folks and for generations to come. And that wraps up this week's Person of Interest. We want to thank Jeff Burning for spending so much time with us. Person of Interest, of course, is produced by Natalie Jones. If you'd like to leave us a comment, send an email to POI, which stands for Person of Interest, POI at WKRQ.com. We always welcome your thoughts. Also, feel free to make a suggestion for a future person of interest. We're going to continue to produce more of these episodes as long as folks like you continue to listen. So be sure to check back with us and don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, for Person of Interest, I'm Jeff Thomas. Thanks for listening. These are the people behind the stories that matter to you. Thanks for listening to Q102's Person of Interest with Jeff Thomas. 